with the climate justice movement, what we are talking about is a new economy, a different kind of economic frame that basically gets people to move uh, to create local livable economies where they're really making some critical choices about um, how they consume and how they live. They're basically, whether it's planning that has to do with transportation amenities, whether it's using rooftops and backyards, uh, or a system of sharing and communicating with each other. And people in our communities get it. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, if you want to learn more about Island Press or their Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital URP. Island Press has two great new publications relating to today's topic and including work from today's guest. The first is the book Energy Democracy, Advancing Equity and Clean Energy Solutions, which you can buy at www.islandpress.org backslash books backslash energy hyphen democracy. The second is an ebook titled Resilience Matters, Transformative Thinking in a Year of Crisis, which is a free download and available at www.islandpress.org backslash rm hyphen download. Our topic today is post-disaster relief efforts to rebuild and revitalize Puerto Rico. And our guest today is Elizabeth Yampierre, an internationally recognized Puerto Rican attorney and environmental and climate justice leader of African and indigenous ancestry, born and raised in New York City. A national leader in climate justice movement, Elizabeth is the co-chair of the Climate Justice Alliance. She is also executive director of UpRose, Brooklyn's oldest Latino community-based organization. She's a longtime advocate and trailblazer for community organizing around just, sustainable development environmental justice, and community-led climate adaptation and community resiliency. Prior to assuming the executive director position at UPROSE, Ms. Yampierre was the director of legal education and training at the Puerto Rican Legal Defense Fund, director of legal services for the American Indian Law Alliance, and dean of Puerto Rican Student Affairs at Yale University. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Elizabeth, last uh, October... You uh, co-authored a a great article in The Intercept with Naomi Klein called Imagine a Puerto Rico Recovery Designed by Puerto Ricans. And there's so much in that article I I want to dive into. But but before we go there, I understand you recently went to Puerto Rico 
And I think it would be great if you could give our audience uh, your take on how the recovery is going and how are the people in Puerto Rico doing right now? Sure. I just came back from Puerto Rico uh, two days ago. I was part of our power PR uh, brigades. We are on our fourth brigade to Puerto Rico. I went with Naomi Klein as part of a tour of the island to speak also at the University of Puerto Rico on shock doctrine, disaster capitalism, and really to support uh, the work that's being done by the grassroots in Puerto Rico. And I think that I showed up with my heart just hurting as a Puerto Rican woman who's a member of the diaspora. And what I found was something that just really made me feel that the Puerto Rican and people have all the solutions, that they are working on food sovereignty, economic sovereignty. They're looking at energy democracy. They're working with each other. They're sharing food. They have created hubs of resistance. Uh, they're sharing information. On the day before I left, there was a meeting with 60 organizations from all over the island. At the talk that we gave, over 2,000 people showed up to hear the talk. I think that the Puerto Rican people who really are descendants of a legacy of extraction, human rights abuses, imperialism, all of it, right, are showing to those of us in, in the states who are looking so much to be able to support their priorities, their agenda, and their work, and doing it out of a place of love, and also because we were born and raised here, and we know what it's like to be sort of in the belly of the beast. Uh, they're showing us that they are strong, and they have the answer. So it, it was a really Wonderful, wonderful experience. And uh, I came back feeling really sort of energized and inspired by even little kids like farmers that started farming in third grade and were talking to me about how because they're working the land, they could feed their moms after the storm. Yeah, and there's so much to dive into there. Any sense of how relief resources are flowing? Is there an adequate flow of, of resources at this time or? No, a third of the island is still in the dark. Just uh, this morning, I opened Facebook to one of our young people who said that his grandfather just got electricity. I think it's been over 135 days. We drove through highways that were in the dark with a lot of potholes, homes that were missing rooftops with no tarp, lines for food and water. That is still a serious, serious problem in Puerto Rico. Uh, I, I don't know if you know that there are 23 super funds in Puerto Rico, and that as a result of the extreme weather events, as a result of the hurricane, the quality of the air, the water, and the lands is, is contaminated. So there's still a lot of problems. And yesterday, uh, FEMA threatened to pull out. And I could go into detail about some of the things that are happening there that are leading to the privatization of the island. Yeah, well, let's dive into that. So in your article with Naomi Klein, Imagine a Puerto Rico recovery designed by Puerto Ricans. You talk about kind of a shock doctrine approach to disaster relief. Can you explain what you mean by that to our audience? Yeah, you know, uh, we're we're calling it a just recovery because what we see in these situations, particularly in the global south, is that people come in with the solutions and they're really band-aids because even if they take care of the immediate problem, they don't take care of the legacy of problems. Like before Hurricane Maria, I think something like 60% of the population was unemployed. But PROMESA, which is, I, I don't know if you're familiar with PROMESA, but it's the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act. It's basically a fiscal company made up of businesses, was really imposing austerity on the island. So it was already bad. The situation was already bad because Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. So the solutions can't be top down. They, you can't have a bunch of nonprofits coming 
in. They really, really have to put the resources in the hands of the Puerto Rican people. And the Puerto Rican people, you know, when we met, uh, we're talking about the fact that before the storm, 80% of the island got its food from outside and 20% of the island, that agricultural land was wiped out by Maria. And so they have this big goal of food sovereignty and creating local livable economies based on systems that make it possible for people on the island to feed themselves. And so they're reclaiming the land, they are reclaiming seeds and they're building and they're growing things. And they want to prepare themselves for a future where there will be more extreme weather events and a future where they don't have to depend on the United States to survive. And that that's what we mean by a just recovery. So our brigades have gone there to basically listen and to support and to help build and follow the leadership of the people most impacted. That's a very different model than what other folks do, which is basically sweep down like they did in New Orleans and like they did in New York City with tons and tons of resources to tell people locally what the solutions should be. The truth is that we're living in the age of climate change and people will have to feed themselves and they're going to have to be able to build these systems. So just recovery is an investment in that sort of, you know, Puerto Rico led effort for Puerto Ricans. Also met these women who have this model that's based on participatory rebuilding that looks at a variety of things that can happen in a coastal community, in a mountain community, and an urban community, understanding that, and they're from there, understanding that even in a tiny island like Puerto Rico, the solutions from place to place are going to be different based on the topography, on the culture, and on the people who live there. So I think think that's what we're talking about when we talk about a just recovery, and it's sort of based on this idea of just transitions that comes out of a movement space, that comes out of the climate justice and environmental justice movement all over the United States and the global South. Yeah, I don't I don't know that it, uh, the average citizen realizes that oftentimes these relief efforts are a business opportunity for big businesses that come in from the outside and even economic the ongoing economic development of Puerto Rico or other places a lot of the money that is spent by government tends to be supporting efforts of people who are extracting from local economies as opposed to that kind of grassroots just development, just relief that you're talking about. So it's fantastic to hear that you're seeing so much energy on the ground and the brigades are going there. What do you think the chances are that the redevelopment of Puerto Rico, the recovery effort, will stay in the hands or be driven more by local people than by outside forces? You know, we're really concerned because it would be arrogant to say that the outside forces aren't moving quickly and are coming in heavy handed to basically uh, privatize entire parts of Puerto Rico. So it's hard. In New York City, what we've done is based on the Our Power PR campaign that was created by the Climate Justice Alliance, Grassroots International, a lot of our partners, we created Our Power PR NYC, which is basically um, Puerto Rican diaspora response to key. Puerto Rico in the press and to basically monitor what's happening with disaster capitalism in Puerto Rico so that we can put on pressure from here. Already, they've closed 184 schools and are looking to turn them into charter schools the way that they did in New Orleans. They're basically uh, implementing a minimum wage of $4.25 for everyone 25 years old and younger. In Vieques, which is a little island off of Puerto Rico, they've lost a third of their residents and gentrifiers have moved in and are having 
conversations about the future of Puerto Rico without Piquenses in those meetings. And the ferry service, which is the only way of getting in and out of the island for people on the island, is not working. So people can't get off the island for health care. They can't get off for educational or or job opportunities. They're literally stuck on this tiny little island without resources. And there's talk that that ferry is going to be privatized. So all of that from the electrical grid to schools, to transportation amenities, things that are basic for a community to survive and thrive are part of a conversation about a privatization in Puerto Rico. And that's just corporations that see the disaster in Puerto Rico as an opportunity for further extraction. And when I say extraction, I don't just talk about the natural resources. I also talk about the labor of people, sort of turning people, deepening colonization for people that are already second-class citizens on their own land. That's also nonprofits that we know that, for example, in the United States, a bunch of organizations got together to decide what to do in Puerto Rico without talking to Puerto Ricans, without asking them, what do you need? Which are the organizations on the ground that we can support in a strategic effort to support you rather than supplant local leadership? So this idea of disaster capitalism goes as far as it's part of the culture of capitalism to basically take and really kick people when they're down. And then this idea that nonprofits can come in and help is also turning people into passive recipients of their good intentions and saying, we have the solutions and we're going to help you. We've had graduate students call and say, we want to write a paper on what's happening in Puerto Rico. Can you connect us to people without asking us, hey, will I be in the way? Really? So people who are really fighting for survival are going to stop what they're doing so that you could write your paper. That's all disaster capitalism. All of that is this idea that you can just exploit people for your own benefit, for your own political or economic purposes. So that's all happening in Puerto Rico on a grand scale and on a very local scale. Yeah, so this this may be an unfair question because you may not be familiar with what's happening in other places, but how could you compare the relief efforts in Puerto Rico to say what's happened in Florida or Texas in terms of disaster capitalism and or how the relief uh, money is being structured? Well, I can tell you, you know, I'm co-chair of the Climate Justice Alliance. I can tell you, for example, that in Houston, Texas, that that community was always surrounded by all those petrochemical industries and was complaining that in the event of an extreme weather event, that the entire community would become a brownfield and that they would be exposed to toxics and toxicants. I don't know that they're getting the level of support that they deserve, but I also know that this president said that they would take care of Texas, but that Puerto Rico was on its own. You also mentioned which were the other two communities? I mentioned Florida. Oh, Florida. Yeah. So Florida, you know, I think a lot has to do with who lives there. We're seeing an enormous number of Puerto Ricans moving into Florida. That may tip Florida politically, may change Florida into a state that goes Democrat. We know that Puerto Rico has already lost 300,000 people, and most of them have been moving uh, to central Florida. But, you know, you've got there a Republican administration, and you've got people that are fairly conservative. And so there is always a likelihood that they will get more support. But just the fact that you're, you've got an administration that's saying that climate change is not happening. Uh, you're seeing a lot of organizing in Florida and Miami with a lot of amazing groups that have come together to address the issue of climate change in Miami. So there is a concern about what do we need to do both in terms of going 100% renewable to creating, building social cohesion 
to address the changes that are coming. And so what happens with the disaster capitalism is that it destroys social cohesion. It separates families, eviscerates small businesses. The things that are the things that will help people survive in extreme weather events all of a sudden are destabilized by disaster capitalism. And you could see that happening. You saw that happening and it's still happening in New Orleans. You're going to see that happening in Houston. You're going to see that happening in all of those places. The big difference, though, between those places and Puerto Rico is Puerto Rico's political relationship with the United States, that those are actual states and Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. And so the economic system and the relationship with the United States has been one of abuse for generations. They can't vote for president. Their rights are really pretty, pretty limited. So it is different. So I'd say it's a more vulnerable, but it also just, I say, also presents an opportunity to see how people who are severely impacted by climate change in that kind of situation come back from it, that can become a lesson for the global South. And so my understanding is that the relief, some of the relief funding that's been come through Congress so far, that the places like Texas and Florida and, and other places that California that have received disaster relief, it comes in the form of a grant, but at least a portion, if not all of the disaster relief to Puerto Rico is in the form of a loan. Is that accurate? Yep, that's true. It's basically not a grant. So what it does is it deepens the debt. And we've, you know, there was already a debt crisis as a result of colonialism and austerity policies inflicted by on the island by the U.S. government. So, you know, one of the things that we've been saying is that they have to drop the debt and they need to be able and, and that what Puerto Rico needs is debt relief to focus on emergency response and adjust recovery from this extractive economy. There's also tax cuts and then there's the Jones Act. We know that Puerto Rico is treated like a foreign country when it comes to taxes. So it's literally penalized constantly without recognizing all of the years and all of the billions of dollars that the United States has gotten out of that tiny little island. So yeah, this uh, oversight committee is basically, or you keep hearing people say, say no to promesa because you can't divorce the emergency response and recovery issues from the fact that this, this body of people is actually crippling Puerto Rico with debt. It was already crippling with debt and a crumbling infrastructure before the storm. So, and a lot of that had to do with U.S. policies. Yeah. So I think that, you know, for Probably a lot of our listeners may understand this, but we should probably just walk through this for a second. So the folks who live in Puerto Rico are American citizens, but they lack representation in Congress. They can't vote for president. We impose a tax regime and structure on them that they don't have a say in. But the converse side of that that, that might come back to bite folks in this particular situation is they are American citizens and they can relocate to other states. And so, like you've said, 300,000 folks have relocated perhaps to to Florida, which could have huge electoral implications. So I'm wondering, as someone who is not, I maybe not up on Puerto Rico to the degree that I should be, why has Puerto Rico languished in this state for so long? And why has nothing happened across different administrations to change that dynamic, to more incorporate Puerto Rico, which is part of the United States, as a full, fully participating part of the United States? That's an interesting question because the conflict of who 
wants Puerto Rico to be a state and who wants to retain the Commonwealth status and independence that continues to separate communities. And one of the things that folks are saying to those that are state that are pro-statehood is that so you want the country that is responsible for sterilizing a third of our women, basically making us citizens just so that we could, they could have bodies in World War One. You want the country that has denied us water, food, and health care to have more power over Puerto Rico. And they ask the questions, they say, basically say, if you want to know what it's like to be a state of the United States for people of color, for a nation made up of people of African and indigenous ancestry to be a state, ask the people from Hawaii how it feels to be second-class citizens in their own nation and be turned into mascots. So there is a lot of, one of the things that has happened since the storm is that there's a lot of conversation about sovereignty, about breaking off the relationship with the United States entirely because people feel if they have to fend for themselves, then why even be part of the United States? That relationship doesn't benefit Puerto Rico in any way. It only benefits businesses. U.S. businesses are the only ones that, and other corporations that the United States bring in, are the only ones really benefiting from that relationship. So that's the conversation that's being had right now. And you have to think about, yeah, they are citizens and they've been citizens since 1917. And the reason they became citizens was so that they could fight in World War One. And then those of us who were born and raised in the United States, we find it amazing that people in the United States don't even know that Puerto Ricans are citizens, that people are always telling us, go back to where you came from, or you should be deported, that the level of ignorance is so deep in this country and it's so unfortunate. So these programs like the one you're doing right now is really necessary because the situation, the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States is complex. They created a state of dependency where they basically change the entire agroeconomy. They created a state of dependency. They brought in all these petrochemical industries. And then people started complaining that people in Puerto Rico depended on the United States. But the state of dependency was created to create a space for U.S. businesses. So it's kind of a cycle. And then we get stereotyped as people who don't want to work when the jobs aren't there and the businesses are really there to serve U.S. economic interests. So a lot of our migrations have had a lot to do with U.S. policies that have been created to benefit uh, U.S. economic interests. So if the folks uh, in Puerto Rico voted for sovereignty, voted for independence, how likely is that to happen? How likely is the United States to allow that to happen? You know, I don't know. I wish I could answer that question. I could just say right now that in different parts of Puerto Rico, people are finally experiencing for the first time what it's like to grow things, what it's like to build things, what it's like to depend on each other. And they're having their first taste of sovereignty. And I'm hoping that that can be built and expanded and that we could support it so that they know that economically it's possible to thrive without the United States. And I, as someone who was born in New York City, I never want to speak for the people on the island. You know, I just want to listen and support and use all of the resources that we have available to us here as people who were born and raised here to support their vision for sovereignty. But I think it's uh, we're talking about more than 135 days in the dark. Can you even imagine that? Can you even imagine a week? And we're talking about 135 days more at this point. It's insane. That could never happen in Houston. That would never happen in New Orleans. That would never happen in Miami. That wouldn't happen anywhere in the United States. They just wouldn't get away with it. Yeah. We recently lost our power here at my house for like two or three days and it was like the end of the world. I can even fathom what it's like to lose power for that extended period of time or even fathom that it like them getting away with it, right? People in the United States, in the continental United States, 
would go crazy, right? It would be, there'd be a revolution. So, so one of the things that we did, by the way, we took, we sent shipments, loads of solar generators, solar panels, solar cubes, refrigerators operated by solar, uh, water filtration devices, all of the things that we thought would be necessary for them to be able to survive without off the grid. And so now this president is what, putting a tariff on solar energy? It's insane that even the solutions when it's a people-to-people recovery, and this is very much a people-to-people recovery. The people in Puerto Rico are tremendously, deeply grateful to the people in the United States for all the love and all the support that they have been giving them since this disaster in Puerto Rico. But even our attempt to try to make Puerto Rico or move it towards 100% renewable energy, this president wants to penalize those efforts. So it's insane. This is, there's just fundamentally this violation of human rights here. So Elizabeth, I have one more question, but before we get to that, how can our listeners learn more about your work and how can they help? Oh, thank you for asking that. So in New York City, we've got the Our Power PR NYC campaign. It's a citywide campaign to make sure we're fighting for Puerto Ricans to remain and reclaim and rebuild. And so that is anchored here at Uprose, but it's citywide. We've got members in Staten Island, in the Bronx, in Queens, in Manhattan, all over the city. The Our Power PR campaign is anchored at the Climate Justice Alliance. And what we're asking folks to do is to send their support to Grassroots International, our Grassroots International is the organization that is the fiscal conduit that is making sure that any funds go directly to the people most impacted, uh, to the front line. So it's not like other relief agencies that are top heavy and none of the money goes to the ground. It's all going directly to folks. And then the other thing I want to say is that people on the island are saying that they really don't want tons and tons of water bottles. It's creating a lot of garbage and pollution. What they want is to be able to extract their own water systems and to have water filtration and desalinization kits. So anything that really sort of respects Mother Earth and gives them the opportunity to rebuild in a way that is just and sustainable is something that's welcomed. And so I would ask folks to contact or go on the website of Grassroots International, which is a member of the Our Power PR campaign. Fantastic. So you mentioned earlier the the kind of the level of ignorance, the fact that most Americans don't know that Puerto Rico is an American protectorate. I don't know what the right word is at the moment. Colony, I guess, is the actual accurate term. And that the Puerto Ricans are American citizens. Further, I'm struck by this moment where we're hit by natural disasters nearly every month or so, there is some significant natural disaster. We had a guest on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, the mayor of town in um, California, where 1,400 homes were destroyed by the wildfires. Literally, most of the, the residential section of the town was destroyed. And I didn't remember seeing anything on the news about that, not even like five minutes of it. So, We live in this moment where obviously there's a bias. California would probably get more press than Puerto Rico, but even California, these natural disasters, we have 24-hour media, but virtually no coverage of what's actually really happening out in the world. How do you, as as an advocate, as an organization trying to affect change, how do you get your message out and how do you communicate in an environment in which the news really isn't 
informing people very much? Yeah, so that's a great question. We think these are un- unnatural disasters. We think that these are disasters that are coming as a result of the earth not being able to handle extraction anymore. And we're going to see more recurrent extreme weather events happening everywhere. So the truth is that people from the global south have always lived within the carbon footprint and now they're dealing with the impact of climate change. You saw that in Sri Lanka, you're seeing that in Bangladesh. You know, you're literally seeing it all over the world and we're seeing it in Puerto Rico going here in the United States. And so what we try to do is we try to connect some of the traditions and some of the cultural practices that people have always had to the changing climate and encourage people to to reclaim those. One of the things that I used to say jokingly is that our people have always recycled, repurposed, and reused because need makes you do that. (laughs) So we've always lived sustainably. And so we're making the connection. So for example, folks that are living next to peak or plants and waste transfer stations, learning that there is a nexus, there is a connection between their health and the PM 2.5 and the CO2 and, and the NOx and the SOx that's coming out of that. We've been doing that for over 20 years in the environmental justice movement. So with the climate justice movement, what we are talking about is a new economy, a different kind of economic frame that basically gets people to move to create local livable economies where they're really making some critical choices about how they consume and how they live. They're basically, whether it's planning that has to do with transportation amenities, whether it's using rooftops and backyards or a system of sharing and communicating with each other. And people in our communities get it. The thing is that these things aren't funded because what happens is that you've got these huge huge organizations that get all of the resources to talk about these things. And then these small grassroots organizations like ours that are actually doing the work in communities that are pretty large and substantial, but our communities get it. And and when I mean our communities, this, like my organization is in a community that is really diverse, you know, I'm talking working class, Latino mix, Puerto Rican, Mexican, Dominican, all of that good stuff. And, you know, it's just Chinese. And these are people who literally come from traditions where they've lived sustainably. But when you come here, to the United States, this is a nation built on waste because waste generates more more money. So we have to make the connection between the way they're living, their health and their survivability and the politics of capitalism, what that means not only to the planet, but to their children. So we have those conversations and people are all about it. It's really exciting to see that level of consciousness. I think what needs to happen is more support from the grassroots up. I always say that the path to climate justice is local. When this thing happened in Puerto Rico, it was like my world's collided. You know, the fact that I've been uh, fighting against uh, climate change and that I'm Puerto Rican and all of a sudden these things just sort of happens in Puerto Rico. But also the situation in Puerto Rico was a reminder, like in Katrina, like in New Orleans, that people who have had to suffer generations of neglect, racism, and austerity are going to suffer the most when they're hit by an extreme weather event. And that's what is happening in Puerto Rico. And that's what happened to our people in the Gulf South. So people are making those connections. And I think I'm really fortunate and blessed to be part of a movement that is carrying the message of just transitions all over the country and that people are learning about that. Elizabeth, unfortunately, we're out of time. But thank you so much for being with us today. And more importantly, thank you so much for the work that you do. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for putting a spotlight on Puerto Rico. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio.
Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.